Thank you, Catherine and Parker and Dan, the instrumentalists and choir for lovely worship today. We continue our sermon series from Luke's second volume that we call the Acts of the Apostles. We've all heard the proverbial saying that the two happiest days in a man's life are the day he buys his boat and secondly, the day he sells his boat. Well, today's sermon is not going to make you want to go out and buy a boat, I have a feeling. When I think about boats, I think about my friend who's now a Baptist college president, but he was pastoring in Arkansas, and he said it was the busiest time of his life pastoring a good-sized church. He was working 70 to 90 hours a week. He said every time that he came home, his own dog would growl at him, and he had to be reintroduced to the children each and every time they ran into each other. And he and his wife were sort of like ships passing in the night, and so they decided that something had to be done for this pastor to have a little bit of time with his family. And so how do you solve that problem? They bought a boat, a pontoon boat. It was a party barge. It was a boat you could picnic on or pull the kids behind in the inner tubes. Swim, laugh, play, cook. You could do everything on this pontoon boat. They had uh, some church members who had a cabin on the lake, and they said, just park your boat there. Here's a key. Come and go however you like. Well, he had the boat, but he still couldn't get away from all the calls that were coming into the church. And, well, he had a hard time explaining the boat to probing church members. And, well, it's kind of hard to say, you know, well, sorry that so-and-so died, but, but the pastor's on the boat this afternoon, and it just was hard to do. And so the children had a brainstorm. They said, let's name our boat. Name the boat? Why would you need to name the boat, the daddy asked. There was whispering and giggling and laughing. And have you ever heard of a boat by the name of Visitation? The gorgeous sun splash day came back around. The calls poured into the church as usual. And the church secretary said, the pastor is not available. He's out on visitation. And it worked so very beautifully. I guess I've ruined the idea now, I told you. You remember that Paul had been told by the, the prophet Agabus that he would be arrested. And now he's on his way in our passage, on his way to Rome, but he's on the way to Rome as a prisoner. Look back at Acts 23.11. In Acts 23.11, the Lord stands by Paul's side and says, Take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, the end there of 2311, so you must witness in Rome also. It is God's plan for Paul to take the story of Jesus to the capital of the Roman Empire, to Rome itself. Just as he had preached it in Jerusalem, now he must give the good news at no less than Rome. He goes as a prisoner back to chapter 27. He has been arrested and he's appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar he goes. Look at 27.1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. 
As you read the story, we find that he has a traveling companion named Aristarchus, who's a, from Macedonia. He's called a fellow prisoner in Colossians. He's called a fellow worker in Philemon. So Aristarchus is part of the missionary team with Paul. In verses 1, 2, and 3, we have the first-person plural pronoun. We have the word we, so we know we have Paul and Aristarchus. We have the soldier, the centurion, and his men. And, and then we know we also have Luke, because Luke says we. Luke is there taking notes. The boat has, the final boat on the journey has 276 passengers. This is a big boat, but it's no easy trip. It's a 2,000-mile journey to Rome. In verse 6, we find out they're placed on an Alexandrian ship. The ship's probably about 140 feet in length. It's got one mass and one square sail, but the going is rough. In verse 4, it says that the winds are contrary. In verse 7, it says that they, the wind did not permit them to go any further. In verse 8, it says that they made it with difficulty. In verse 14, we have a violent wind. In verse 18, they're violently storm-tossed. In verse 20, neither the sun or the stars shine for days, and the storm was assailing us. In verse 27, the boat is driven about by the storm. And in verse 41, the ship hits a reef and breaks to pieces. Well... After they board the boat, they make it to Fair Havens. And the question is, winter is coming. Should we try to make it? Should we stay back? Well, Paul gives them his advice that, look at verse 10. Paul says, I don't think we ought to do it, guys. Winter is just around the corner. Now, Fair Havens wasn't the best of ports, but at least it was safe. I don't think we can... I don't think we can make it, guys, Paul says. We need to stay here. But the captain of the boat and the pilot said, no, we can make it. Let's make it to Phoenix. And if we make it to Phoenix and the weather still looks good, then we can make it on to Rome. So the centurion is having to judge. Julius is having to decide, should he listen to Paul, this prisoner, this preaching prisoner, or should he listen to the captain and the pilot of the boat? Now, you might say, why would Paul be asked his two cents worth? Well, Paul was a, a seasoned traveler. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, we learned that Paul had been shipwrecked three times. He knew what a wrecked ship looked like. He had floated all night long, a day and a night in the deep. And so Paul knew, I know what it feels like when the weather's not good, when the season's approaching, I've been wrecked before. But Suetonius tells us that Claudius, the Roman emperor, had set up a bonus. Food supplies were so short in Rome during the winter that the owner of the boat, who would try it and risk it and make it for winter, would be given a big bonus for bringing the wheat, the grain, to Rome. And so I'm sure that that bonus was passed down to the captain and the pilot, and they say, man, we can make it. Let's go for the money. And Paul is saying, we don't need to go. Well, look at verse 14. Before long, this Euroquilo, that's a combination of Greek and Latin. It literally is translated northeaster. This wind comes, a strong winter wind, a destructive wind. 
And according to Luke, in order to avoid capsizing by the wind, they just get in front of it and they just are pushed by the storm. And all of a sudden they come under an island called Clauda and they have to make a decision. What are they going to do? They can keep running in front of the storm, but they do. They fear they'll crash on the North African coast. Or they can turn around and go into the storm and just be pushed westward by the wind. They decide to go into the storm because going in front of it was sure doom. Well, they did three things. They hauled in the little boat that was pulled behind the ship. They took ropes and ran them underneath the ship while they were under the protection of the island to strengthen the front so when it hit the land in the crash. And they brought down the, the sail. They trimmed the sail and it was all nothing more than busy hope. Storms always come in our lives, don't they? Scott Peck began his popular novel, The Road Less Traveled, by pointing out something that you've already learned. Life is hard. Life is hard. Hard and life is hard for everybody. We should not be surprised at the storms that come into our lives, by the prolonged illnesses that we face, by the loss of a family member, by a financial crisis, by a rebellious teenager, by dealing with a diagnosis of depression, by family tensions or accidents that come our way, the loss of a job, the breaking of a relationship and divorce. Storms constantly come into all of our lives. That is simply the nature of life as we know it. The question is not whether storms will come, but how we will respond to those storms. People who are unprepared for the wind and the waves are blown off course. They flounder, they wreck, they drown. Here's a little poem I found entitled, Ships and Souls. Ships sail east and ships sail west while the selfsame breezes blow. It's set of the sails and not the gales that determine the way they go. Like the winds of the sea is the way of fate as we journey along through life. It's the set of the soul that determines the goal and not the calm or the strife. Don't be surprised at the storm around you. It reminds us of something like Psalm 107 where God is pictured as the God of the big wave. The waves are enormous and you realize the power of God when you're at sea. Well, the going gets worse. Verse 18, they start throwing the cargo overboard. Verse 19, they start throwing the, the tackle overboard, what they need to operate the ship. They're getting rid of all the weight that they can. Verse 20, they haven't seen the sun or the stars in days. Look at the end of verse 20. Some of you find yourselves this morning at the end of verse 20. At the end of verse 20, we learn that there's absolutely no hope. All hope of our being saved 
was gradually abandoned. All hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Sometimes life takes us to that point, that point where we really don't want to live anymore, that point where we are so broken and so hurt and so tossed and battled to and fro by the storms of life that even our zeal for the next breath is gone. We don't even care anymore. Some of you are right there in verse 20 this morning. Some of you watching by way of television, that's where you live right now is at verse 20. It's a divorce, it's a loss of a job, it's a moral failure, it's a financial hardship, it's a disappointment with somebody that you thought would never, ever disappoint you in your life. Whatever the storm is, whatever the wind and the water might be, all sense of hope for you has been abandoned. But that's where we meet God, isn't it? God specializes in meeting people who are hopeless. God specializes in meeting people who are broken. God's best work is done when you introduce him to somebody who doesn't even know where to turn next. That's where God lives. God dwells at the point and the moment of our sorrow. Where are you going to find God? Do we find God in our successes? Hardly ever, because when we're successful, we think that we ourselves have done it. Do we find God in our happiness? Very rarely, because in our happiness, we don't have time for God. We most often find a home with God in our hopelessness. Some of you are right where they were on this big boat this morning. Verse 21, they can't even eat anymore. Some of you have been on a big ship before. I, I was going, I've only been on one cruise, and um, I don't really do good with vertigo, and I'm not the guy on the Ferris wheel. And everybody said, oh, wait, those things are so big you don't even feel them move. Oh, yes, you do too. I was green as a gourd. We got into a storm. We hit eight-foot waves. I was green as a gourd, had patches behind both ears, trying to get over it. Just imagine, that's nothing. This boat is being tossed to and fro by enormous winds. This is not the Queen Mary II. This is a grain ship. They drift for 14 days. And in verse 21, aren't you glad Paul does it too? I told you so. I told you we should have stayed at Fair Havens, but you wouldn't listen to me. But an angel of the Lord that I worship has come to me and said, we will all be saved. We're going to lose the boat. We're going to lose the cargo. It's back in the ocean. But all of us will be saved. They began to measure the water 20 fathoms, that's about 120 feet, then 15 fathoms, and indeed some of the sailors know that land is approaching. And in verse 30, the sailors do a crazy thing. The sailors were going to jump in the lifeboats and get themselves to safety. 
And Paul catches them, and Paul says to the centurion, if they do that, we're all going to die. Everybody's got to stay on the boat. I talked to the angel. Everybody's got to stay on the boat. And the captain makes them stay on the boat. We're all familiar with E.J. Smith of the Titanic, who took the women and children to the lifeboats, and he himself sank with the ship as a captain. And, and that's normally what we think should happen, but it doesn't always happen that way. Why, well, these soldiers were worried about their own selves and, and not the passengers. Do you remember in 2012 when Captain Francesco Chettino was accused of abandoning the ship off of Costa Concordia, the ship? That it began, he tried to show out with a cruise liner. He tried to bow to the, the locals on the Tuscan Island. And, well, people die. There are 4,000-plus people on this ship. And with two newborns left on the boat, some handicapped people, a total of 250 left on the boat, the captain jumps, saves his own soul. The Coast Guard said, you better get back on the boat. You're the captain. You can't leave until everybody else is off. And the captain said, and they record it, but it's dark outside. That's just a guy you want in charge of the boat. But it's dark outside. Let the babies fend for themselves. He actually was arrested and charged with manslaughter for the lives of those that he abandoned on the boat. Verse 33, Paul says, eat up. You're going to need your strength. Verse 35, he takes the bread and breaks it. It almost has a Lord's Supper feel to it as he began to eat. They're encouraged. They, they eat also. Verse 41, the big boat strikes a reef, it, and the soldiers are about to kill all the prisoners because, well, it's better to kill the prisoner than he go free. And the centurion stops him because Paul himself was a prisoner and in danger. They said, everybody who can swim, take off. If you can't, grab a plank, start kicking. It's everybody for themselves. Pastor, how does this passage apply to me, this big boat wreck in Acts? I want you to look at verse 25. Paul says, keep up your courage, for I believe in God. That's a message to some of you here this morning, some of you listening by way of television, and some of you here in this great sanctuary. Keep up the courage, for I believe in God. It's a passage about the, the bigness of God, the sovereignty of God, of all the haphazard humanity of arresting Paul to start with and then not listening to Paul's wise advice to stay at the harbor Everybody's making bad decisions, and yet God has promised that God will get God's way, and Paul will end up in Rome where he can preach the gospel. Keep up your courage, for I believe in God. Some of you here this morning are thirsting for that word. You find yourself at the point of abandoning all hope. Keep up your courage and believe in God. 
For those of you this morning who are going through divorce proceedings, keep up your courage. For those of you who have lost your job and downsizing, keep up your courage. For those of you who can't sleep at night anymore, you toss and you turn and you worry and you fret, keep up your courage. God is big and sovereign. Believe in God. And God, in his sovereignty, will take all of our messes and mistakes as we yield ourselves to him and bring us along on our journey. For those of you in the storm this morning, the word is keep up your courage and believe in God. For those of you who have not yet hit the storm, I've got one promise for you. It's coming. It's coming, and when it does, you remember, keep up your courage, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Let us pray. Well, God, I know in the thousands watching by way of television and large group of folks gathered in this room that there's some folks who find themselves right there. At that point, we abandon all hope. And I don't know what the winter wind is. I don't know what the waves are made of in each life in this room, but I know the God who can say to the storm, peace, be still. Maybe there's some this morning who need to come and reaffirm their faith in God to get them through. Maybe there are others who want to come and be a part of this congregation. And and maybe like those baptized this morning, there are others who would come and say, it's my day to decide that I'm going to serve the big God who's bigger than the storm in my life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Maybe you